Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. Hey everyone and welcome to part 13 of Flourishing in Isolation. As you know, we have been taking part the last few weeks in exploring these prison letters written by the author Paul while he was under house arrest in Rome. It's been some fantastic times of study. I hope you've benefited from that. I know that I have in the process of doing it. If you want to catch up on any of these, you can go back through the podcast, listen in, or if you want to watch, you can watch on the YouTube channel, uh, Freedom Church UK. And we're just asking that question from these ancient texts, how can we flourish in isolation? As we find ourselves in uncertain territory, how do we learn from what we can read from this incredible book, the Bible? Last week, we learned specifically about how we can flourish in the second chapter of Philippians. We reminded the way of Jesus is the way of humility, of being humble. That Paul himself, at the end of his life there in prison, he was full of joy. Even though he was facing death, potentially, he was full of joy. We said that we need to treat others better than ourselves. It's one of our learning points last week. That the, the importance to empty ourselves, like Jesus emptied himself and became the very nature of a servant, that we must re- re- let go of the desire for relevance and say, actually, it's all about God, not about us. And lastly, we said we need to shine brightly like the stars, that we shine brightly as we quietly run our race every day. We shine brightly to those around us. I don't know about you, how you're getting on with this process of learning and application. I don't know about you, but I find studying and reading the Bible easier than I do applying it. Sometimes it's difficult to live it out on a day-by-day basis. That's the hard part. I endeavour to treat others better than myself, but then sometimes I can feel hard done about that, and it's like, it's not easy. I'd rather do what I want to do for my own benefits. But this is the way of the cross. This is the way of Jesus. To not seek fame or relevance, but to take on the very nature of a servant just as Jesus did, to humble ourselves, to quietly shine each day, every day in the darkest of places, to light up our world one good deed at a time. Easily said, not so easy to do. So if you can get hold of your Bibles, I do suggest getting hold of a real Bible so we can just concentrate and not get sidetracked by any notifications popping up on your screen. And so get hold of your Bible, uh, let's get comfortable, and let's continue with the book of Philippians, starting chapter 2, verse 19. And Paul is saying these words, If the Lord is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit. Then he can cheer me up. I love that. He can cheer me up by telling me how you are getting along. I have no one else like Timothy who generally cares about your welfare. All the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Christ. But you know how Timothy has proved himself. Like a son with his father, he has served with me in preaching the good news. I hope to send him to you just as soon as I find out what is going to happen to me here. And I have confidence from the Lord that I myself will come to see you soon. Paul is just giving a little kind of commentary there on Timothy. Timothy was Paul's right-hand man. He was a fellow traveller with Paul. He was well-respected and also was a co-author of this book, The Letter to the Philippians. If you look at the opening lines of chapter 1, you'll see it's from Paul and from Timothy. There are two letters in the Bible addressed to Timothy. Paul writes these two letters to uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. 
And uh, he obviously likes Timothy. He's very compassionate about him, kind about him. He says these words here, I have no one else like Timothy. He really holds him in high esteem. And he was not just affectionate of him, Timothy was well thought of by many others. In his later life, Timothy became the Bishop of Ephesus, or the modern-day Turkey. He became a senior churchman in that area. But Paul doesn't stop there in complimenting members of his team. He starts with Timothy and saying, you know, there's no one like him. And then he mentions another team member, Epaphroditus. In verse 25, he says these words. Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He is a true brother, co-worker, fellow soldier, and he was your messenger to help me in my need. I am sending him because he has been longing to see you, and he was very distressed that you heard he was ill. And he certainly was ill. In fact, he almost died, but God had mercy on him and also on me so that I would not have one sorrow after another. So I'm all the more anxious to send him back to you, for I know you will be glad to see him, and I will not be so worried about you. Welcome him in the Lord's love and with great joy, and give him the honour that people like him deserve. For he risked his life for the work of Christ, and he was at the point of death while doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. Epaphroditus gets this lovely commentary from Paul. Paul was saying here, Epaphroditus, which apparently meant in the original uh, Greek there, meant lovely, charming or handsome. That was his name. Uh, But he was another worker who formed part of Paul's support team. But he'd gotten ill. And we're not quite sure why he was ill. There's almost intimation that Paul is saying there that he was homesick. That actually was missing his friends back in Philippi. And uh, it might be overwork, working for Paul and supporting him. Or it may just be he was just missing his family and friends. But we know he became so ill that Paul sent him home, back to Philippi, back to his friends and family. And I love the fact that although he was back to health and that God had rescued him, says Paul, he also needed respite. He needed time to rest and recover. And amazingly, Epaphrodites, a bit like Timothy, Epaphrodites becomes the first bishop of Philippi. So you have two co-workers of Paul, Timothy and Epaphrodites, who end up becoming senior church leaders in two major cities, uh, Philippi and um, Ephesus. Two men who served faithfully. Now I love the fact here in this opening few verses that Paul speaks so well of his colleagues. It's really important that these two men who were humble and willing servants of Paul that ended up eventually in in prominent positions, but Paul spoke well of them even when they were humble and serving. The way people speak about others is very telling. It informs us how that person will speak about us when we leave the room. If you hear someone gossiping about people, saying nasty things about people, you know that when you leave the room, the chances are they will say the same things about you. We tend to tell gossips less information about ourselves because we're confident they're going to tell others because they're telling us the same things about other people. James 3 talks about uh, the, the tongue, this small part of our body. The tongue is small, it says, but it has huge impact. Think about, you know, it won't take you long to remember those unkind comments someone has said about you in the past and how they still resonate and echo around your head. The tongue may be a very small part of our body, makes a huge impact. And in James 3, you know, he talks there about uh, the, the power of the rudder being a small thing that can turn a huge ship, or the bit in a horse's mouth that can turn a horse left and right. We need to be careful about 
what we say with our words, especially when we speak about others. And if you're on a team with other people, if you're working with other people, speak well of them. They will behave as you expect them to behave. And Paul was speaking well of his colleagues here, Timothy and Epaphrodites. I remember when I first moved to Romsey, I met some people here from the church and uh, it was called New Life Church then and we came, we were just exploring the possibilities. And I met a lovely couple of the church who were just talking about some of the concerns they had about the church's situation, but they were doing it in such a delightful manner and they were refusing to speak badly of anyone else. They had some concerns, they were putting them across carefully, but I loved the way they didn't speak badly about other people. And it drew me in. I thought, I want to be working with people who are kind to other people in that way. They spoke well of others. Let's be people who are careful of the words. Remember, we, our words have power. Like a small spark, they can create a wild fire. That's what we can do. So we've got to be careful with our words and be careful with what we do with our voices. Speak well of others, especially when they're not present. So we jump back in and into Philippians chapter 3. I hope you did okay and you're tracking with me so far. Philippians 3, the priceless value of knowing Christ is what my chapter is headed up here. This is such a great chapter of Philippians. It says this, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out, he carries on, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Well, there's two verses slap bang next to each other. I never get tired of telling people to be joyful, but in my next sentence, he's like, watch out for the dogs. Uh, you know, he would be talking about the fun sponges or sometimes the joy suckers, the people, the dementors, if you're a Harry Potter fan, the people that come into our lives and into our conversations and communities that absolutely can do damage to us. They can pull the joy out of the room. They change the atmosphere with the wrong, uh, uh, the wrong way. And we want to be people that actually bring joy into places. And Paul is saying that whatever happens, rejoice. I never get tired of saying be joyful. He never tires of it. And I know sometimes, you know, those smiley, happy people are a bit annoying. You know, when you're not having a good day and someone comes dancing into the room and they're bouncing around like Tigger from, you know, and you think, oh, really? You think, really, what do we want to have this bouncing character who's smiling and joyful? But Paul says, be joyful always. He carries on in the next chapter we're going to hear in the next couple of weeks. And maybe those people frustrate you, but it's better to be surrounded by people who are full of joy especially godly joy, then people who want to pull all the energy out of you. Be careful who you surround yourself with. Find people that build you up and lift you up, not someone who pulls the energy out of you. Think carefully about how you spend your time with people who maybe are not healthy for you. And Paul is saying that I'm a joyful person. I want to keep on saying it, be joyful. But watch out, when he talks about dogs, I don't think he's talking about actual dogs there. Maybe he's an anti-dog. Maybe he's more of a cat man than a dog man. I don't know. And maybe he doesn't like pets at all. But he said, watch out. And he's quite unkind. Having just talked really well about Timothy and Epaphroditus, his words were almost a little bit like, you know, gruesome. He said, watch out for those dogs, those mutilators that are all about cutting off your bits, your circumcision, rather than actually um, saying to you what's really important. Now, we've got to understand here what really Paul is saying. He's saying this. He says, don't be fixed on the rules, but concentrate on a relationship with God. Don't get fixated 
by systems and ways of doing things. Make sure your priority is relationship with people and relationship with God. And what Paul is doing here is he's pointing us, that hyperlink we've talked about before, he's hyperlinking us back to a scenario that took place in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. And this is the moment where the early church, and the early church was made up majority of Jewish people. And the Jewish people who turned to the way, this way of Jesus, and their thousands gathered in Acts chapter 2, and Peter preached his message, and these people all gathered together. And in Acts chapter 10, um, they had this moment where Peter visits the home of a Gentile, a non-Jew. And he goes to his home, and he visits this Gentile, and he takes some of his Jewish friends with him. And they eat together, and they have a meal together, and then they pray to God, and the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles, like the Holy Spirit fell on the Jewish early church in Acts chapter 2. And in those early moments of this church development, the, the leaders of, in Jerusalem were saying, this is not acceptable. You can't have non-Jews joining our gang. It's not on. And, and, and yet Peter, who was leading the church at that time, he was saying, but look, they are receiving the Holy Spirit the same way we are. It doesn't really matter whether we ate meal with them or not. Jesus is saying that this is for everybody. This is the same God. He writes these words in um, Acts chapter 11. These Gentiles, um, he's given these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I to stand in the way he's saying who was I to stand in the way but when they heard this and they stopped objecting and praising God actually if if God is at work here if God's Holy Spirit is falling on these Gentiles as the Jews then we've got to accept it in just the same way and what Paul is writing here in this book of Philippians is pointing back to Acts 10 and the scenario there with Peter and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem and he's saying the same things he's saying you know what it's relationship over rules. We mustn't get sidetracked by the rules. The rules are important to give us structures and systems, but the rules must never beat the relationship. God is more important. Other people are more important than our systems and rules. Now, for those of you who love a bit of theological study, here's a challenge for you, because Paul is messing with our heads here. He is saying, you know what, Let's not get sidetracked by the mutilators, the ones who want to take the joy away, who want to go, actually, you've got to be circumcised if you want to be a follower of Christ, if you want to be part of this thing called the way. But then later on in Acts chapter 16, if you note that Paul gets Timothy circumcised so enable him to be acceptable for the Gentiles that he was evangelizing to at that time. Uh, sorry, the Jews he was evangelizing at that time. Now, if you look at that, because that's a confusing message, Paul is saying, we don't want to succumb to the ways of working here and these mutilators, these dogs. He then says in Acts chapter 16, which is early in this, he's saying, actually, Timothy, probably good you get yourself circumcised so you can fit in and be one of them and you can then communicate well to the Jews about this story of Jesus and who he is. So maybe a bit of study there or maybe you want to get in touch if you think you know the answer to what Paul was doing, being all things to all men might get you started. I hope we do okay. Sorry about the background noise, but I'm going to keep on going if that's all right with you. Uh, I'm so aware of this idea of us being one, about treating others well, or having relationship over rules. The world has changed a lot in the last few months, in the last few years, the last few decades. It always is changing. 
I remember when I came to Romsey, where we live now, and we took on the leadership of this church, I remember the first few weeks I was taken to the minister's meeting in town. And all the church leaders get together once a month and we talk about our various churches, what's going on, and we pray together. And I was welcomed with open arms by all the ministers of all the different uh, styles of church that we have here in this town. But what was interesting when I spoke to my predecessor, he said to me, this wasn't my story. He said, when I first came to the town, some 30 years earlier, he said, I wasn't welcome in this group. I wasn't welcome because we were seen not as a proper church, that we weren't part of the structural church, the, you know, the, the, the kind of the Church of England or the, or the Methodist Church or the, you know, the Baptist Church. We weren't a regular church. And so therefore, what would be called as a non-conformist, he wasn't welcomed. But when I came along 30 years later, they were welcoming me with open arms because everything had changed in that time. And it's true that sometimes our systems stop us from seeing people as who they really are, made in the image of God. And I'm so glad that since that time, I've been able to welcome other ministers as they've joined other churches in the town. And it doesn't matter what approach you have, what style you have. If you love Jesus, you are welcome into this community. And we welcome you with open arms. How we treat people and how we speak people says more about our Christian faith and the God that we serve than to those who are listening and watching. And people are listening and watching all the time, I'm sure. All right, carrying on then, verse 3, verse 3 in chapter 3. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Jesus Christ has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more, says Paul in humility he's saying you know I've got loads of things I've done I've achieved a lot of stuff I could boast about it but our confidence should not be in God alone when we rely upon our own ability or our own natural talent we no longer need God this is what Paul is saying I can be confident in myself be confident in what I've done I can be more confident than anyone else but I want to be somebody who is confident in Jesus Christ and what he's done for me like a child that's learning to swim you know, you take your child swimming that first few times and they can just about touch the bottom of the floor. And I know one of my children used to, they used to sort of tiptoe along the floor and they pretend to swim while tiptoeing and looking like they were swimming on the top. But underneath the surface, they were just hopping along the floor. And we know that's not how you can swim. You need to, at some point, go, I'm going to have confidence that as I swim, the water will carry me. All the time, I'm just hedging my bets and keeping my foot on the floor. I will never be able to swim. And we won't be able to trust the water will hold our weight. In the same way that when we work with God, the best place we can be is in the deep end, where we have no other choice but to trust God. And we will know that it's God who is helping us, not our own natural ability. It's a bit like, I think, the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. You know that story where Gideon gets called by God to lead the army of Israel. He gathers crowds of thousands to this army, preparing to take on the people of the Midianites uh, for a big battle. But just the night before, God says, no, I don't want this big army. I want you to reduce that right down. I want you to take it down to a less, less people. And eventually God removed all the numbers of people. There was 300 men left in Gideon's army, facing thousands of Midianites. And God said to Gideon, I want to show you what you can do with my power and an obedience. 
And that night, Gideon steps up and they, and they, and they surround the Midianite army. And you know the story. Uh, the, 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 the Israelites win. Gideon is champion. God is the champion because they know that with God is for them. Who can be against them? The power of God working through small numbers. And so, you know, this, this story is a story of us today. We must be people that trust in large numbers. We mustn't trust in large resources. We mustn't trust in our own abilities or confidence. We must trust in God, that I know that God will work through me. That old song of trust and obey, for there is no other way. And we want a people that trust in God, to obey him, to step into him, and rather than trust in our circumstances, to trust in our, uh, our finance, to trust in our work situation, but we trust in God. And he carries on here and he, he lists out, Paul lists out from verse 5, all the things he is good at. He's got quite a list. He says, I, I was circumcised when I was eight years old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one, he says. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness... I obeyed the law without fault, he's saying. I've done everything right. I'm a good person. I've, I've done all my qualifications. I've done all the right things. He has got an impressive CV. And Paul is lining it all up there. He said, look at me. I'm confident that what I've done is really good. And I could probably say the same sort of things. I could say, you know what, as a church leader, I've been involved with working for the church since I left school. I did a year out and then at 19, I took my first job working for a church, a local church in Kent. And I, I, I started that life as a school and children's worker. And from there, I've been spending over 20 years working in local church in one form or another. And I've got a master's in theology and Christian leadership. I've completed that at Moreland's Bible College. I've written a book about the church and all these good things. I can list out all this stuff of look at me, look what I've done. But the truth is, and whatever is on your CV and whatever's on my CV, none of this really matters. It doesn't matter. None of the things I have done will get me into heaven. It is not going to help me get anywhere to impress God. It is all about a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Especially in this season we are facing. As everything has changed, the church has changed forever. The church that I grew up in, the, the systems I've learned about how to lead and run church, they've all changed. You know, the way I used to work doesn't work anymore. And we have to find new ways. It's like we're starting again. But we trust God. I am trusting God. I am trusting God. I, there are no books that tell you how to lead church through a COVID-19 pandemic. There are no uh, church leaders who've ever done this before. No one has been through a crisis like this. But we will get through this together if we put our trust in God. It is his church. It has survived 2,000 years and it has evolved and it's reshaped and reformed many times over that season and I'm trusting that God who created his church and we get to look after it for a season of time has got a plan if we trust God and we obey his commands we will get through this I am confident of that so Paul after listing out his his CV his list of things he could do from verse 3 to 6 from verse 7 says these words I once thought these things were valuable. I was once impressed by all these things, but now I consider them worthless 
because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I became, I become righteous through faith in Christ. That's how it works. We cannot impress God with our religiosity. We cannot impress God with our actions. It is through faith that we are saved, not through works. And yet I know in James it says, you know, faith without works is dead. That's completely true. But here's the, here's a subtle piece here. It always starts with faith first. Getting our faith in Jesus should drive us to do good works. Works by themselves will never be enough. Doing good things gets no one nearer to heaven. We must not be satisfied with only doing good. This is a challenge of what's known as the, the social gospel. This concept of doing good is a way of telling the story of Jesus by simply doing good works. It's more than that. We don't want to risk sending people happy to hell. We want to say, no, we want people to be saved, to become righteous by faith in Christ Jesus, not just obeying rules or following systems or whatever it is it needs doing at that time. Here at Freedom Church, we run a program called Freedom Matters. Uh, which is our overarching organisation that runs our various community projects, whether that be uh, we do a, a food bank in partnership with the other church in the town, which we organise. We have a CAP debt centre. Uh, we work through life skills courses and other programmes we're developing around befriending. And we're trying to help people in our community. We're trying to reach out to people who have needs, where people are bound up in debt or people are struggling with feeding their families or where people maybe are you know, struggling with uh, finances or food or circumstances such as housing. We try and help those people, but we don't want them just to be physically free. We want them to be spiritually free as well. We, but we do need to start at the point of need. A hungry man desperate for a meal doesn't want to just hear about the gospel message and the bread of life. He wants to be fed. So then he can say, why are you feeding me? Can I find out more? That's the purpose. The Matthew 25, where Jesus says, you know, I'm calling you to go and to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to visit those who are isolated and in prison, as if you were doing it unto God yourself. That's the reason. But we must never stop there. We're not called just to do good works. We're called to see people saved by faith. I used to go along with that famous quote by St. Francis of Assisi, who would say, at all times, um, preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. At all times, preach the gospel, when necessary, use words. And I understand the concept there, the idea our actions preach the gospel, our actions tell the story to people around us. And I do agree, but ultimately, it must lead to a confession and that comes through our mouths that it says that Jesus is Lord. It needs some words that respond with our heart that say I want to have faith in Christ Jesus. I don't want to just do good things. I want to change my heart as well as my actions. Carrying on there, verse 9. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. 
I'm always in awe of the way Paul writes. I am just like, how does he have so much joy and yet faces so much challenge? So much, he's such an optimistic person. I wonder if he would frustrate people around him. He's so full of joy and possibility. He's like, I want to suffer, even if it's suffering with Christ, because I'm going to share in his death and his resurrection. But this is the story of the gospel. This is the story that the writer Paul is continually trying to get across to us over and over again, that we need to have faith in Jesus, that we must experience his mighty power and share in his suffering so that one way or another, we will be alive in Christ forever and ever. Amen. Amen. That's what we get. We'll be alive with Christ if we choose to have faith in him, to follow him and to share in every aspect of his life. So as we bring things to an end today, what can we learn from Philippians 2 and chapter 3, which we've covered a bit of today, that will help us as we choose to flourish in isolation? One thought is that faith in Jesus is the ultimate goal. It's not about following rules or doing good works. If there's some things for you to take away today, but these, number one, remember, speak well of each other at all times. Speak well of others at all times, as we looked at in Philippians chapter 2. Secondly, relationships are always more important than rules. Full stop. People really matter. Relationships are always more important than rules. If you're never sure what to do, do I obey the rules or do I care for the person in need? Care for the person in need. We'll fix the rules later on. People are always more important. People really do matter. And number three, we need to be people of faith. People who choose to live a life of faith. Not a people who just do good works, but people of faith. People of word, works and wonder. We want to be people of miracles, people of, of, of possibilities, people who live in the spiritual realm and trust God with our lives. We people who follow Jesus fully. Let us pray, shall we? Father God, I thank you for the message of this word that we can flourish as we choose to follow you. Lord, help us to be people of faith, not just of action. Lord, help us to be people who treat people well, that we respond to others in love. May we never be stopped by the rules, but may our relationships with other people always take the priority. Father God, help us not just to learn in this season, but to apply it well, that we take what we are gleaning from scripture and put it into practice this week, I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll see you again next time. For more information about Freedom Church, please go to www.freedomchurch.uk. Thank you for listening.